0: Here will be just a second this uh, chapter is difficult it's a warning text exactly what it is um i hope that through this, you will get a sense of urgency to share your faith with your loved ones, your relatives, your friends, and your co workers. This is very serious. We have a, you serve a God that's loving. Yes, he's faithful. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he will forgive. But there's a time coming when he will judge. There is coming the judgment of God. An event that we should not take lightly, but very soberly and reverently. With that, I look for an introduction, so bear with me. Culture Research Center in Arizona Christian University, this is a poll taken May the 19th of 2020, Barna and his research group will show the same thing, but their poll was back in 2015. I wanted to get one one a little closer to where we're at today. This is what they found. 58% of American adults believe moral truth is up to the individual to decide. Now let's bring it closer to their home. According to the research, evangelicals, and evangelicals can mean different things today, but what they mean by evangelicals is someone who believes the Bible to be the Word of God and to be reliable, and they attend a church that believes the same way. Only 46% of people who identify as evangelicals believe that there's a such thing as absolute moral truth. Now let's even get closer to the home. Born-again Christians. These are people who believe in Christ, that He died for our sins, and He rose on the third day. Everything that you and I hold to be true, this is what they believe. They are born-again Christians. Only 43% of born-again Christians believe there's a such thing as absolute moral truth. Which begs the question... If that is how you feel, then why do you go to church? Because the Bible presents absolute truth. And this has resulted in our culture today that basically says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. There is a famous celebrity on TV, on the talk show, that person's talk show, who is on the air saying there's many roads that lead to heaven, not just Jesus. And that's what we find out in our society. And many people say Christians or Christianity is intolerant and exclusive because we have the audacity to believe there is only one way, and that's through Christ. I say we're not exclusive. We're inclusive because what did Jesus say? Whosoever. As anybody, doesn't matter where you are, where you come from, anybody can come to faith. Now, as we turn our attention to the text, in chapter 12, we are introduced with the dragon that we know is Satan. And in chapter 13, we are introduced to these two beasts. Revelation has brought into focus a contrast, a contradiction that has existed since the beginning of time. Talking about this good and evil, this God and Satan. And is at the heart of all salvation history. The beast is depicted throughout the book of Revelation as a fraud, a fake, a counterfeit. Imitates the actions and persona of Almighty God, assumes divine characteristics disguises himself as the true bearer of power and authority and confuses people into worshiping a false god. And here's my point. If you do not believe there is anything, uh, uh, there's nothing, there is no absolute moral truth, this text says otherwise. And we go out and witness, we have to realize that people don't understand that. And the first thing we must do is to pray. Because what we're about to read should break our hearts. Really, it should scare us, sober us, and break our hearts. Look at verse 11. I saw another beast coming out of the earth. And that Greek word translated earth can also be translated land. Now, as we talked about last week, remember that in ancient times, the sea was often pictured as a place of chaos and destruction or the raging Gentile nations. So some take this word land as to mean the ancient land of Palestine, that this beast, whatever it is, has a Jewish ethnic origin, more specifically that it comes from Israel. And why do they say that? Israel not accepted as a Messiah unless it came from their own land is the argument. However, this is somewhat difficult of almost impossible to prove from the text. Whatever he is, wherever he comes from, he is not what he seems to be. Look back in verse 11. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. No one's afraid of a lamb. Gentle, harmless. Innocent, and in Scripture, ceremonial clean. When he first appears, he will at first seem to be all these things. He will seem to be meek and lowly. Therefore, he will be grossly underrated. The reason for this, guise or this deception is to get the people to worship the first beast. And we see that in verse 14. He will make the evil of the beast look good to humanity. He will appear harmless, but in reality, his words, will be, his words will be deadly. Even though he has two horns, the text tells us he speaks as or like a dragon. And remember, the dragon is Satan. And the mode of Satan's language is lie. He is the father of lies. We read that in John chapter 8, verse 44. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. For false Christs, that word could be Messiah, and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Even people who say that they're born-again Christians could be misled by this beast. Look at verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He's acting as the mediator, if you will, the go-between between between the first beast and the people. Back in verse 12, he makes, he compels, he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed and to achieve, excuse me, to achieve, I can't To achieve, there I go, to achieve this feat, he's going to perform great signs and wonders. Look what it says in verse 13. It tells us that he performs great and miraculous signs that even he makes or causes fire to come down out of heaven to the earth. Now that Greek word translated sign or signs, it has the indication of purpose associated with it. In other words, miracles happen to achieve a further understanding or a particular response. John uses this in his gospel when he talks about miracles, talk about a sign, because each sign that Jesus performs points to the fact that he's indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. He starts by turning water into wine. And the last miracle he performs before he is crucified is raising Lazarus from the dead. So each sign builds upon another. John does that on purpose. The Bible does that on purpose, showing us that he is indeed the Messiah. But he tells us here in verse 13 that not only does he form these great and miraculous signs, doesn't tell us all that he's doing, Notice that signs is plural, so he's doing a lot of them but he makes a point to say that he even calls down fire from heaven. That's really interesting to say the least, because almost always associated with the act of God's judgment is fire coming down from heaven. Now, instead of you giving every reference to you this morning where that happens, let's go back to Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Two places you may have heard of, Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That was the judgment of God. Now think on this. Here's this beast. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. He's not what he seems to be. He's doing all these miraculous signs and wonders, even calling fire down out of heaven. Those without discernment will conclude without reservation fire dropping from heaven is an act of God and resulting in the vast majority of people being deceived by this beast that he's, he's what he says he is but they're all being deceived because they can't tell the difference. Hence the point about absolute moral truth. Verse 14 tells us, which is quite obvious, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs. He will attempt to make this new religion, if you will, appealing to the people. It will combine all the features of the religious systems of man. It will appeal to man's total personality and take, a vo- take full advantage of his carnal appetite. Religion. Let me just define what I mean by that. Religion By simplest definitions, what can we do as human beings, as humanity, to reach God? How can we appease God that we may attain to him or have relation to him? Christianity, I would argue, is not a religion because Christianity says, no matter what you do, you cannot reach God. Rather, God reached down to you through his son, Jesus Christ. He came out of heaven, came off the throne, and took on human flesh. There is nothing that you or I can do to reach God. You cannot be good enough. You can't pay your way in. There's nothing you can do. You are saved by faith. Or excuse me, you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only by the grace of God. That anemic appeal of the second beast, and by the way, if you skip ahead to chapter 16, verse 13, he's called the false prophet. His appeal will be his ability or his skill of combining political expediency with religious passion, self-interest with benevolent philanthropy, moral platitude with unbridled self-indulgence. His arguments will be subtle, convincing, and appealing. His use of speech, his oratory skills will be eloquent and persuasive and make an excellent use of rhetoric. It will be hypnotic, able to move masses to tears or build them into a frenzy. He'll be a very smooth talker. He will control the communication media of the world. He will skillfully organize mass publicity to promote his ends. He will be a master of every promotional device and public relations gimmick. He will manage the truth with deceitfulness beyond words. He will bend it. He will twist it. He will distort it. And public opinion will be at his command. The deadly appeal of the second beast, the false prophet, will be the fact that what he says sounds so right, so sensible, so exactly what unregenerate people want to hear. The tickling of the ear, as it's referred to in Scripture. Telling people what they want to hear. All of this power is centered on one goal. To get every living being to worship the Antichrist, the first beast, rather than Jesus Christ. And look what he says in verse 14. Telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast. This is what it's all about. The mocking of the Trinity. You see it unfolding before our eyes. All of this to get people to worship him rather than than Christ, which, by the way, has been the goal of Satan all along. He wants to be the focus of worship and not God. But I cannot stress this enough. If we're not ready, now, I don't have enough time, but it depends on your, your uh, view of the tribulation, if the church is here and we're raptured before or mid or after the tribulation. But unless we arm ourselves with truth, many will go, Many going to be deceived. And will fall into this trap. But it gets worse. Look at verse 15. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is full-fledged idolatry. The image seems to take on life and speak. Even mandate death for all those who refuse to worship the image. And in addition, economic sanctions are passed. Look what it says in verse 16. He causes all. Now in case you're wondering what all is, he explains it out. He causes all. He requires everyone or he forces everyone. The small and the great, the rich and the poor the freemen and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Everyone will get this. And that word mark in the Greek appears infrequently in the New Testament, but it's used by Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Before I read that, this is reference to Paul talking to the Athenians that, hey, No image or anything made by man can be divine. It can't have divine characteristics. So in Acts chapter chapter 17, verse 29, he writes, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the thought of man. You can't do it. That's idolatry. And by the way, we think sometimes of idolatry as a statue and people bowing down to it. An idol is anything that gets between you and God takes God's first place. It can take many forms. It can take money. It can take sports. It can take occupations. It can take hobbies. What is stopping you from putting God first place in your life? And since the word mark is not really explained in the text, there have been many interpretations of what this might be like. Uh, What kind of mark will it be? What it will look like? Some have speculated that it might be a computer chip embedded. Maybe you've heard that in recent times. That's that's the mark of the beast. Because he says in verse 17, he makes clear what its purpose is. Look in verse 17. No one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. People who get that mark show their allegiance to Satan and their willingness to Vest and to buy into the economic system he has established. To deny the mark is to align with God, and it makes it clear in this text if you don't worship the beast, you don't worship either of them, you will be killed. People who refuse it are committing themselves to God, preferring death rather than compromising their faith in Christ. May I just ask, this is coming from the heart. We've been so blessed in the United States of America. Let me ask you a simple question. How far are you willing to go? Would you rather face death than to compromise your faith in Christ? And I mean that honestly. Honestly. And sincerely, because I think that day is coming. And pull a gun to my head and ask me that question, that'd be one thing, but put a gun to my wife's head or one of my children, a little different story. But I pray that God will grant me the gift of the Holy Spirit that we've seen so many times in martyrs throughout the faith of Christianity, who at the time of execution sang songs of hymns and praise to God. That was a gift of the Spirit. I mean, there's tons of accounts where Polycarp was one of them, Bishop, of Smyrna, and burned him at the stake. And as the flames lapped up on his flesh and began to burn, he was singing hymns and thanksgiving to God. How could he do such a thing? That's the gift of the Spirit right there. Bearing witness to who Christ is. So, think of that question. Would you prefer death rather than compromising your faith in Christ? Verse 18 tells us here is wisdom. Wisdom. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. This text makes it clear that it's going to be a human being. And just as a number six falls short of the perfect number seven. See, in ancient times, the alphabet just make letters, but they also had numbers associated with it. And seven, throughout Scripture, is considered complete, it's considered perfect six falls short of that. And here we see it in its tried full form, 666. And what that's doing for us, it's making clear and underscoring the intrinsic or the intoler- inherent evil bound up in this individual. At this point, some saints are being killed, led in captivity. All the earth is forced in economic circumstance, allowing only those... Faithfully serving the purpose of the beast to enact trade so the pressure and the tribulation the sinning on the saints is afflicting them in every conceivable way not a very fun picture is it we could spend our time talking about who the antichrist is i know Uh, Back in the 40s, people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. We can look today and think maybe this person or that person. Sometimes we get caught up in discussions about the number of the beast. What would that look like? Or this computer chip some people coming out with. Perhaps that's the mark of the beast. There's nothing wrong with having those discussions. Don't misunderstand me. But I think our time as believers could be spent in better ways. Spend our time presenting Jesus Christ to the public and to people that we love. Therefore, reducing the number who could possibly get deceived. Why let them go there to begin with? Let's stop it here and now by giving them the gospel. Now, not everybody here is a gospel is going to accept it, but we must continue. Therefore, reducing the number of the population who will be deceived. Instead of spending my time trying to identify the Antichrist, I want to know Jesus the Christ. I want to echo with the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, in order that I maintain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, I want to know Christ. This text, along with so many others, it should rend our hearts that we want to know Christ, and know Him more. We want our family to know Christ. I want my children to know Christ. I want everybody I care about my coworkers, to know Christ. This is a warning because my plan, your plan, I hope your plan is that we're going to be with Christ one day, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because Jesus Christ died for us on the cross and by His grace, we will be in His presence in heaven one day. The time is growing short, dearly beloved. Look around you. Who's missing? Who needs to hear? As we read about in Ephesians and Bible study this morning, it's our obligation to share Christ. It's our obligation, our duty to pray for those around us. I stand here before you today by the grace of God, but I know one person who constantly bent her knee. And that's my mom. She never gave up. And many of you, I gave my life to Christ in 1998. If prior to that time, if you ever prayed for the lost to come to the saving knowledge of Christ, thank you. I was one of them who was lost until that time. And so many other brothers and sisters that I work with who well, I look back now that God placed on my life. Come full circle now back to what we talked about in the beginning this idea about absolute moral truth. What do you say? Because, first of all, how you answer that question will determine how you handle this text. You will blow it off as, don't mean nothing to me. Or, worse yet, we claim to love Christ, and yet we think back and say, well, they're getting what they deserve. How dare we ever think that? But let me leave you with this this morning. What say you about absolute truth? Can I just remind you of one simple verse in the Bible, John 14, 6? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. He did not say he's a way. That's a definite article in the Greek. It's the way, the life, the truth. So let's just not beat around the bush. Either Jesus Christ, is his, he is exactly who he claims to be, or he's just a lunatic or a fanatic. He can't be a good teacher making claims like that. I say to you, he's exactly who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and he is coming back. This, what we've just read about, is going to happen. Close your eyes for a second. Think about the biggest crowd you've been in. Perhaps a concert or a sports event or something. When you think of that, think of all the people. Think of people's faces that you come in contact with every day. And now think about this text. What are you going to do? You going to tell them? Or are you just going to casually walk on by like it doesn't matter? May I remind you, you're sitting here today. You're a Christian today because someone loved you enough to tell you the truth. There's millions of people out there looking in such rotten places to find meaning and purpose in this life we have the answer, dear beloved. We have it, and His name is Jesus the Christ. And he allows us to be part of the greatest mission there is on earth, that God would allow me to spend his first over half his life denying his existence using his holy name as a cuss word saving me and only that gifted me with his spirit and his gifts that I may become a proclaimer that's what preaching means it means to proclaim publicly proclaim I don't claim any eloquency when I speak or any great knowledge. The only thing that I claim is the cross of Christ. And in that I boast. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we, we know that you are speaking to us. We know you're here. We can feel your presence moving. Father, grant us the courage and the boldness to do what we ought to do. Not to be mere spectators, but to get out and take an active role. And Father, if we look around our country, uh, we see your spirit moving among a a lot of college kids today around many campuses. Father, we thank you for that. We want to fan the flames of that. Father, we know you want to do the same thing here. But you want to stir our hearts. Father, we are so tired this gathering Sunday after Sunday going through the motions. Father, we want to experience your presence. We know you're the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You're the same God who can perform all those miracles we read about. So God, continue to speak.